entitled Anthropologist on Mars. And in that book, he talked about his profession. He's a neurologist, so he spends a lot of time working in that area and helping people adjust to changes that happen when there are operations that affect their brain and the way their brain works. And he talked about a man named Virgil who was 50 years old and he had been blind his entire life. And thanks to a very new, innovative procedure, he was given, after 50 years, the gift of sight. But as Dr. Sachs writes in his book, the gift of sight is not necessarily the same as being able to see. What happened was that Virgil could make out colors and he could make out shapes, but he had a hard time adjusting to what things were, to really identifying objects. And that made it difficult for him to do just the simple, everyday activities of life. He had to completely relearn how to do even the most basic life functions, even standing up or walking or sitting down. And at the end of that story, Dr. Sachs makes a statement that's very interesting. He says that one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. He said the transition was so serious, it was so major, that you had to literally put aside that old life that you used to live and relearn how to do everything. You see, Virgil was having trouble because all his behavior patterns and all of the things he was doing were what he had done for 50 years. He had to change that. It's interesting because as we go through the New Testament, don't we see that same image used in a spiritual way over and over again? We read about putting to death the old man of sin, the old way of life, and learning how to live a new way and to live for God. Just imagine what it would have been like to live in the first century and to come out of a a pagan religion, maybe a a religion that worshipped idols or maybe several idols, a religion that worshipped several gods, to worship of the one true God. It would require completely relearning how to live life. Things that had once been such a part of your life, going to the temple to worship idols, engaging in different activities, that now had to be changed. And because of that, I'm convinced that's the reason Paul spends so much time in his letters giving very practical commands and application for a Christian's life. After all, they were relearning how to live life. And our verses, the verses we're going to be looking at this morning are right in the middle of one of those sections in the book of Colossians. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in the first few verses of Colossians 4. While you're turning there, let me let you know how grateful we are to have you here, especially if you're a guest with us. We hope you'll stay around, let us get to know you. We also hope you'll stay for our Bible classes. We have immediately following uh, this service. Not only that, but we're right now planning to have some small groups meeting at different times throughout the week uh, to follow up on some marriage enrichment that's based on the fireproof movie. We're calling that fireproofing. There will be a larger, uh, longer announcement about that later on, but we want you to know that that is a very special opportunity, especially if you're a guest. We want you to be a part of one of those groups. In many of his letters, when Paul is writing to Christians, he's writing to Christians that he knows personally. Many times there are places that he's been where he's preached or even planted a congregation. When he writes to the Colossians, it's a little bit different because he lets us know in the first chapter that it's Epaphras that was the one who taught them the gospel, that was the one who shared God's word with them, and they were converted. So Paul's heard a lot about them, and there seems to be some sort of false teaching that's taking place. 
It's true for a lot of the letters in the New Testament. Paul's writing to correct a certain teaching that's been going on. And whenever we read about the letters, we're getting only one end of a phone conversation. We're getting one side of the conversation taking place. So we don't know exactly what the false teaching was. We know it had something to do with the teaching about Christ. Uh, It may have been one of the common ideas of the day, which is often referred to as Gnosticism. That comes from the word for knowledge. It just means that people were going around saying you had to have a special knowledge in order to truly understand God. And that could be what Paul's dealing with here. That belief often led to people saying that Jesus wasn't truly the Son of God. And so for the first two chapters of the book of Colossians, Paul paints a beautiful image of the preeminence of Christ as the Son of God. Some of the richest teachings we have about Jesus are found in these first two chapters. They're beautiful word pictures that Paul paints. And then when he gets to chapter 3, he makes a transition. Because of what he said in chapters 1 and 2, he transitions into how they should live. And so in the latter half of Colossians, he gives some very practical advice. And that's where our text this morning is really embedded in some of this practical advice, how to live. He begins in the context of speaking of prayer in the first few verses of chapter 4. And as we read in uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we have the New King James would say, walk in wisdom. New American Standard renders it, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul would write something very similar to the church in Ephesus. There are a lot of similarities between the two books, Ephesians and Colossians. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes this same idea to them when he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's that same idea, walking with wisdom. And did you notice that when he speaks to them in in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, he connects his teaching with how outsiders are going to look at them. He's spoken of what it's like to be in Christ in the first half of Colossians. And now he says that their actions are going to affect the way those who are outside of Christ look at them. The way they view Christianity, the way they view faith, even the way they view God is going to be based on the way his people walk, the way they live their lives. As we've been looking through in our fall focus and how we can evangelize, how we can share God's word, it's clear from the text this morning that we need to understand too how we live is a very powerful tool we can use to bring others to Christ or it could be a powerful detriment that would keep them from following God. And so Paul gives us some very specific advice on how we can live in a way that shows outsiders who God truly is. That shows those who are just looking at Christians and saying, I don't know what this is all about, what serving God really means. And so the first way we see, the first key that he mentions here, is that we need to walk in wisdom. If I want to learn how to walk this Christian life, I need to walk in wisdom. Have you ever watched a child as he learns, he or she learns how to walk? I love looking at our our children as they go into the nursery and even in our our younger classes and seeing them learn how how to walk around. If you watch a child, he or she is learning the things that we take for granted. How to keep your balance. 
how to make sure that you're walking forward instead of just sort of rocking from side to side, how to walk in a straight line. And so if we're going to be learning this Christian life, we need to learn how to walk, and that's a walk that shows wisdom. In fact, that's one of the images we see all throughout the Bible for people who follow God. It's a walk. When the Proverbs writer is writing in in Proverbs 28 and 26, he would say, whoever walks wisely will be delivered. When John would write in 1 John 1, 7, he'd say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Even earlier in this book, in Colossians 1 and verse 10, Paul mentions that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing and being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The Christian faith is often described as a walk. I think that's significant. A walk is something that's active. It's not a, a sedentary lifestyle where we sit down and, and we take things in and we absorb things and then we never let that affect our life. A walk is something we do. It's something that's active. All throughout the book of Acts, when people are converted, they're converted to a faith that has them changing their actions, changing their lives. In fact, the author of this book, Paul, is a perfect example of that. A man who totally not only turned around what he believed in his mind about Christ, but the way that he lived. He made a dramatic 180 to live a different way. And so as I think about the Christian life, it's, it's a walk. I don't know about you, but I've been a part of clubs or organizations before where I've paid my dues once a year and really didn't do too much uh, throughout the year with that organization. You may have had that same experience. It may be a club that you joined in school that you didn't really do much with, but you did get your picture in the yearbook in extra time because you were part of that club. When we think about the Christian faith, it's not an organization where I can pay my dues and just sit back. Paul describes it as a walk. Other images would include a battle, standing firm in battle, putting on the armor of God. It's something that's active. It's something that we do. And as Paul describes how Christians will affect the world, he says that Christians need to be walking in wisdom. Circumspectly is the way he would write to the Ephesians, examining each step, making sure that you're walking in a wise way. As we learn about how to share God's word with others, if we're not walking in wisdom, if we're not walking in a wise way ourselves, all of the scriptures we want to share with someone else won't do very much good. We can memorize scriptures, we can sit down and we can know each step of the study we're going to go through, but if I'm not living it in my own life, I'm not going to be very effective. As we think about living the Christian life, we understand that people look more at our walk even than at what we say. As I was thinking about this text, I was reminded of phrases that we hear oftentimes, often are used a lot, so much so they might even sound like cliches. We think of the term, uh, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Uh, We might think of the uh, old saying that you may be the only sermon that people hear or that people see. And you know the reason why those statements are used over and over again? Most of the time, statements become cliches because there's truth in them, because they're true. Imagine that you have saved up all week, you've done all of your work, and you've saved up some free time for Friday night. Friday night, you're walking to a movie theater, and you pay for your two tickets, and you're going in uh, with, a, with a friend, with your spouse, you're going to enjoy this movie You've got everything, all your homework, all the work for the week taken care of. You've got babysitters at home. Everything's taken care of. You're going to enjoy this time together. 
and you've paid for tickets and popcorn and Coke, and you sit down, and after the previews are over, there's a bulb that it sort of short circuits in the projector, and all you can hear is the audio from the movie, but you can't see anything. And you sit there, and you hear the music, which would be the credits go through, and then you continue to sit there. You hear the movie start, and you, the characters are talking to each other. You can't see anything. You can't see where they are. And then there's some movement. You can tell something's happened, but nothing in the projector comes back on. No one comes in to fix it or explain the situation. How many of us would sit in a dark movie theater and pay full price for just being able to hear the movie and not see it? How many of us would get up at some point and go find a manager or go find an employee and try to find someone that can take care of the situation? If we didn't, we'd feel cheated, wouldn't we? Or we'd feel like we had paid for something we didn't receive. It's no wonder that sometimes when those who aren't Christians look at the life of Christians and, and all they can hear are the words that Christians are saying, the lip service they might pay to religion, but they don't see anything, It's no wonder sometimes people feel cheated. If I want to show people who God is, I'm going to have to walk wisely. All of the scriptures I can memorize and all of the things I can tell people aren't going to be very effective unless I'm walking with wisdom. But Paul tells the Colossians that there's something else that they need. They also need to be able to live with a purpose. And the phrase here that the King James and New King James Uh, would render is redeem the time, to be redeeming the time. We'd use that in Colossians and that same figure in Ephesians. I had a teacher in high school who had a sign on his wall that said, redeem the time. And I used to look at that sign and I spent the longest time trying to figure out exactly what does that mean, redeem the time? I knew what redeem meant. I'm trying to figure out redeeming the time. And finally, after a while, I realized that it meant to use time wisely. And using time wisely probably didn't include staring at a sign on the teacher's wall for about 30 minutes of class every week. And finally, finally it dawned on me, redeeming the time is using time wisely. Uh, The phrase actually means buying up the time, as if it's a precious commodity. As if time is something that that we don't have enough of. We want to buy it up, make the most of every opportunity. Think back a few weekends ago when there was a shortage of gasoline in Nashville. Do you remember all of the panic that created? Now, we drive by gas stations every day. Uh, We probably don't give much thought to whether or not a gas station is going to have gas. But that weekend, it was serious because there was a shortage. It was a precious commodity. And as we think about time, I wonder how we would act differently if we knew that time was a precious commodity, that it was limited. It's It's not limitless. We have a certain amount of days that we live on the earth. And Paul is saying, that's a precious commodity. You want to buy that up and use every single opportunity. If we want to find an example of someone living with that purpose, understanding the brevity of life, we can't find a better example than Jesus. Even though we don't read in Jesus' ministry about him being hurried or, or, or busy in the sense where I've got to get all this done and, or I'll feel stressed, we do see that Jesus always had a purpose. He was always focused on his mission. In fact, if you would turn over to John chapter 9, we see just a, just a sampling of that purpose in Jesus' life and in his ministry in John chapter 9. You may remember that he and his followers encounter a man who has been born blind. And their initial question is, whose fault is this? 
which is a lot like human nature to try to discover who's really responsible for this. Jesus' answer reveals a lot about his focus. He says in verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. See, the apostles were looking at the situation, trying to figure out whose fault it was. Jesus says the point is not to figure out whose fault it is. The point is to do the work of God. There's a time coming when we will not be able to work. We need to take advantage of every opportunity. Jesus was redeeming the time. I'm also reminded of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 is an interesting time because it doesn't seem like things are going very well for Paul. In fact, he is being physically attacked by a group of Jews, a large group that's gathered around him. They're attacking him. It's not the only time Paul would be persecuted for the faith, but we see a vivid depiction there in Acts 21. And finally, when the the Roman garrison commander comes over and is able to break everything up, and he's able to get all of these people off Paul, this mob that had surrounded him, Paul decides that he wants to request something of that officer. And his request is that he can turn and that he can share the gospel with these people who had just been persecuting him. I don't know about you, but if someone is is physically attacking me, I might not think that's the most opportune time to share the gospel. That's what Paul does in Acts 22. He tells his story. He talks about his conversion. It doesn't end well. In verse 22 of Acts 22, they still want Paul to be put to death. They don't think... He deserves to live. But isn't it interesting that Paul looked at such a negative situation and he said, this is an opportunity. I want to make the most of every opportunity. And as we focus on evangelism this quarter, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we making the most of every opportunity? Every single chance I have, every single person I know, am I, just, am I making the most of every opportunity? We won't have unlimited days to work with the, our coworkers every day. We won't have unlimited time to spend with our friends at school. Are we making the most of every single chance that we have? Are we redeeming the time? Paul told the Colossians that's important, to take advantage of every single opportunity. And in fact, we see all throughout the New Testament, there are times that it might not look like the most opportune moment. I might think that, well, I don't know if, if it, work is really the best time for me to talk with someone about religious matters. And then I remember Jesus' example and Paul's example. Realize I need to be seizing every opportunity. And thirdly, Paul would tell the Colossians they needed to speak with grace. I don't know about you, but of the three keys that Paul mentions here, this one hits probably closest to home. Because I can think of so many times in my life when my speech wouldn't have been characterized by the word grace. And Paul uses the image of salt to describe how our speech should be seasoned. And we might be familiar with Jesus calling the Christians, his followers, the salt of the earth. We might not be as familiar with the way it's used here. Salt was often associated with grace. So to have speech seasoned with salt was, would be seasoned with grace. Today, when someone has a salty language, that's not a term that we think is very positive. It would have been positive in Paul's day. That would have meant that the conversation was pleasurable, that it was, that it was pleasant, that it built people up, that it, it left people the same way that uh, they left when a, f- a food was seasoned with salt, that they had a sense of pleasure. All throughout the New Testament, we're told about the importance of words. 
Paul wrote to the Ephesians that they should be speaking the truth in love if they wanted to grow up in all aspects of Christ. Not only that, but later on in that same chapter, he would say, let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. There's that grace again. And not only that, but when Peter would talk about sharing God's word, he says we need to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is within us. Just as Jay prayed earlier, we need to be ready to respond. And Paul mentions that in Colossians and how you should answer each one. The end result of being seasoned with grace, having speech that's seasoned with grace, is that we know how to answer each one. We know how to speak in a way that's positive, in a way that builds people up. And so as I think about the way that applies to evangelism, I realize that I need to be very concerned about the words that I use and the way that I talk to someone. People might be offended by the gospel message. The gospel message might be offensive. In fact, it often was in the New Testament. People should never be offended by the messenger. They should never be offended by what I say. Now, if if they're offended by the message of the gospel, then that's another matter altogether. But if they're offended because I've said something foolishly or carelessly, or I've I've used phrases that demeaned them and and made them feel negatively, there's a chance I could get in the way of the gospel message. We know God's word is the power that changes people's life, not my words or my approach. And so I need to be very careful about letting God's word speak and getting out of the way and not saying things that might offend someone else, having speech that's seasoned with grace. You can probably think about someone in your life who speech was seasoned with grace. Every time you had a conversation with that person, you felt better about yourself. You felt better about life. They're the person you call when you're feeling down because you want someone to cheer you up. Or when you need to vent, they'll give you good, godly advice. That's the kind of speech that's necessary for us when we're sharing God's word with those around us. A few practical ways that will manifest itself is that when I'm sitting down and studying the word with someone, I'm going to do a lot more listening at first than I will talking. It would be easy for me to sit down and tell someone everything I think that he or she needs to hear, but if I want my speech to be seasoned with grace, I need to know where they are, what their needs are. I need to be able to meet them where they are and to realize that we all are in different places in life and we need to be continuing to grow. I'm also going to watch to make sure I don't say things that might cut other people down or or demean them or their sincerity or their passion to do what's right. I need to be very careful that I don't judge motives in the way that I speak. It changes the way that we speak when we think very carefully about how what we say will affect other people. If we want our speech to be seasoned with grace, it's going to change the way that we talk. As Paul would write to the Colossians, he said in these verses that give us just this practical advice, he say, number one, you have to walk with wisdom. Walk in a way that you're examining every step that you take to make sure that it is a, a good evidence of who God is. Not only that, but to live with purpose, to be making the most of every opportunity. And then also to speak with grace. And as we think about that Christian life, as we think about dying to our old self and beginning that new walk, it may be that you feel a little bit uh, like Virgil in the account that Dr. Sachs gave. It it may be that 
that you want to begin a new life and you realize that beginning that life is going to require to learning how to live every aspect of your life all over again. Well, there's no better place, there's no better time, and I can't think of a better group of people to be around to make that decision, to put Christ on in baptism, to begin that walk that's learning how to live life in a Christian way. Or it may be that you feel like you're simply walking in the wrong direction. That you've begun that walk, but you're walking away from God and you want to walk back toward Him. It's a beautiful fact that every single person here can leave this assembly walking in a way that pleases God. And we're going to sing an invitation song in just a moment. If there's a need that you have, if there's a way that we can help you begin that walk, it can begin today. It can begin right now as we stand and as we sing together.